things you don't really need to know or probably should. I'm Kira Revan and this, this is the Sunday 7. On today's episode of the UK's largest sprint in the space race, there's finally good news for the ozone layer and a new kind of vaccine is causing a lot of buzz. But first, it was on this day in 1861, the steam elevator was patented by Alicia Otis. ChatGPT took the internet by storm when it launched in late 2022, impressing by generating stories, poems, coding solutions and beyond. The software can write essays and codes and program questions on anything that happened before 2021. It promises to change the future of search engines and it's been billed as a threat to academia, journalism and other professions that require research and writing. In recent weeks, its potential has even led New York City's education board to ban it from schools. But is the hype overblown? To dig a little deeper, we got chatting to tech reporter Will Guyatt. Hi, Will. Thanks for joining us. So, to start, could you explain what ChatGPT is and how it works? So, ChatGPT is essentially a chatbot. So, you can ask it questions and it comes back with its answers. Everybody went absolutely bonkers over ChatGPT at the end of last year. But the reality is... This actual software, the the, um, the kind of the the language set and the set behind it, was first created in June 2020. So this is almost three. This is nearly three years old. This is kind of uh, Stone Age in terms of AI. So with everybody's losing their um, losing their cool over this, I can't wait to see what they make of Chat GTP4 when the GTP4 standard for AI comes out later this year. Why is the technology making headlines and why is it so alarming? Well, it's it's 50-50. I think people got really quite surprised that here was a artificial intelligence uh, algorithm piece of code generating uh, human responses. They felt like somebody had typed them. Now, it's a little bit like going to a magic show. You get kind of bowled over by the first two uh, tricks that they do and then you suddenly start looking into how it's all formed and it's made so the reality is uh, essentially and a professor from the Netherlands an AI professor far more eminent than me uh, called uh, chat GPT a bullshitter on steroids uh, in a recent conversation so basically it can talk a good game but sometimes its answers are filled with the most spurious crap that's the issue at the moment it talks it's like a pub pub conversation basically with somebody that doesn't know what they're talking about it can look convincing on the surface but when you scratch into it it's not quite the same does chat gpt have the potential to replace google everybody's got far too excited to say that the current version of chat gtp chat gtp3 could replace google could start replacing humans in jobs i've even seen suggestions it's going to start replacing journalists uh, this current iteration of this sort of software will definitely not do that but the really intriguing thing is what comes next uh, like i said the language model and the machine learning behind this is typically it was almost three years old and they're set to release something new this year there'll be the gtp4 standard this year and then we'll look to see if they roll out a, a new version of that for the chatbot soon after and that's going to be a lot more realistic that's not just going to respond 
in a way that makes you think it's human. It's going to have far more uh, concise answers. It's essentially not going to respond like it's an academic writing a Wikipedia page, which is what happens a lot of the time at the moment if you ask chat GPT free questions. It was reported this week that Microsoft is investing $10 billion in OpenAI. Should we be worried about this technology in the hands of big tech? One of the big questions and the biggest ethical concerns around artificial intelligence in general is the fact that the tech companies just aren't talking about what they're doing and how they're investing. We had rumours that that app everybody was using on social media pre-Christmas to make kind of sketched versions of themselves. Everybody was uploading images into it and people were questioning what was happening with all that data because people were uploading images to essentially help train a piece of artificial intelligence and if millions of photos were uploaded to it you're essentially doing the job of advancing and training somebody's piece of artificial intelligence that they could sell for millions or billions of dollars potentially. So there's all sorts of smoke and mirror around, mirrors around artificial intelligence and there's concerns about who's in control of it and uh, whether or not governments should have a say. One of the big things this year, I think tech companies are going to get a lot of questions about how they're running themselves but I think there's also going to be a lot of questions from governments all around the world about how AI works because everybody is finally waking up to the fact that not only can this take people's jobs change society forever there's also the how, how companies get there and advance it and whether they're doing it in an ethical way. On the evening of Monday the 9th of January, the excitement in Cornwall was high as Nuki prepared to enter the space race. Virgin Orbit's modified Boeing 747, dubbed Cosmic Girl, took off horizontally from spaceport Cornwall with the launcher one rocket attached to its wing. Wheels off the ground. Godspeed launcher one, Godspeed Cosmic Girl on this historic both European and UK mission. Open space for everyone. Liftoff of the UK's first ever satellite mission was a Cornish dream. The journey of nine satellites started out smoothly. It looks to be a successful ignition. But from the edge of space came a message. Have a Welcome back, everyone. Uh, it appears that Launcher 1 has suffered an anomaly, which will prevent us from making orbit for this mission. The rocket hit 11,000 miles per hour, but then its boosters misfired and it crashed back to Earth. While the 747 returned safely back to Cornwall, the rocket and satellites were lost. Whilst this is not the launch they were hoping for, the UK Space Agency was still reaching for the stars the next morning. Here's Ian Annett, Deputy Chief Executive of the UK Space Agency, speaking to Channel 4. The real achievements are not the successes that people see, it's the hurdles that as a team you can cross. We will get there, we will absolutely get there. Virgin Orbit has successfully launched satellites and four rockets from its California base, but that followed a test flight that also failed. Whilst Virgin Orbit is still trying to work out what happened, the spaceport proved rockets can be launched from a regional airport. This is Melissa Thorpe, head of Spaceport Cornwall. One part of it didn't go to plan, but that hurts everybody. But at the same time, we're a licensed spaceport. We show that we can launch, and that's just so exciting for us because we know and we're ready to do it again. And we've learned so much um, from the experience, and we'll implement that into the, to the next time that we go, and hopefully that will be you know soon. Still to come on the Sunday 7, an update on the ozone layer, and London's Sea Life Aquarium starts their big count and clean-up.
Now for some good news. The ozone layer Earth Shield, which protects us from the sun's harmful ultraviolet rays, is healing and could be fully restored in the next four decades. That's according to a new report co-authored by the UN, the US and the EU, which says that human action to ban ozone-harming chemicals is working. The phase-out of nearly 99% of banned ozone-depleting substances has succeeded in safeguarding the ozone layer, leading to a notable recovery of the ozone layer in the upper stratosphere and decreased human exposure to harmful ultraviolet rays from the sun. That was Stefan Dujaric speaking from the United Nations. Those were first discovered in the ozone layer in the 1980s. By 1987, 47 countries had signed up to the Montreal Protocol, banning gases in aerosols and fridges called CFCs. They were destroying the ozone, letting through harmful ultraviolet rays that can cause problems like skin cancer. But while the depletion of ozone is not a major cause of climate change, saving the ozone layer does have a positive knock-on effect on global warming. This is because some of the chemicals that were phased out are powerful greenhouse gases. The report says that the ozone layer should recover to 1980 levels by 2066 over the Antarctic, by 2045 of the Arctic and by 2040 to the rest of the world. There's always a risk that progress could be reversed, but still the UN is optimistic. For many, the new year is all about taking stock and getting organised for the year ahead. And for the creatures at Sea Life London Aquarium, it's no different. To kick off the year, aquarium staff have embarked on the mammoth task of counting all of their 6,000 plus sea creatures in their annual Count and Clean project. To find out more about what it takes to keep count of everyone living at Sea Life London Aquarium, we chatted to Charlotte, an aquarist at Sea Life. My name is Charlotte. Uh, I'm a senior aquarist at Sea Life London Aquarium and I'm responsible for the care of uh, lots of different animals in our collection, including penguins, reptiles, fish, amphibians, lots of other invertebrates. So where do you start with the enormous task of counting all the animals at sea life? Our first step in the process is we have very comprehensive online uh, tracking systems for all the animals in our care. So what we do is we export those records, look at what we have on paper, Um, and then we will go to each exhibit and then compare our records to what we see in front of our eyes. Which was the most challenging animal to count? I can imagine the penguins getting up to no good whilst you're trying to do your job. Exactly like you mentioned, the penguins are quite... um, They're mischievous, but at least there's only 15 of them. So as long as you can count to 15, you're okay. That being said, sort of getting in with them and interacting with them is always interesting. You know, we've got certain individuals who are very playful. They like getting underfoot. Uh, We've got... um, Elton, who likes stealing the squeegee whenever you're cleaning the windows. So you have to be mindful of things like that. You know, we've got a clownfish exhibit with, I think our count ended up being just shy of 270 individuals. So that's very difficult. But the people who work with those exhibits closely know the animals very well. How do this year's results compare to last year's? Were there any new arrivals? We have actually had some exciting new arrivals this year that we've been really pleased about. We had two uh, cow-nosed ray pups born just before Halloween, which is really, really lovely. Um, They've just about gotten to an age now where we can look at potentially moving them to another collection, um, which is something that is really important to us is to contribute to breeding programs with other collections, other aquariums and zoos, um, to make sure that that genetic diversity is strong and to contribute to uh, conservation projects where we can. That's something that's really important to us and doing the counts and cleans really allows us to be fully informed about which of our collections are being particularly successful. 
um, so that we can communicate that success to other collections and they can do the same to us and we can sort of collaborate and make progress where it's most important. Aside from just keeping count of the animals, why is the animal account important for the aquarium? What other purpose does it serve? The primary importance of it is so we can assess the overall success of the uh, breeding of the animals that we have in the collection and see where we can then collaborate with other collections. Equally, we can potentially see where we might be lacking somewhat and we can then reach out to other collections to see whether we can do some sort of animal transferring from them to us. It's all sort of rooted around collaboration, really. It'll be another year before another big count and clean. What's in store for the aquarium in 2023? So it's... A busy day at the aquarium, probably 365 days of the year, if I'm being completely honest. So there'll be lots of cleaning and checking and um, animal care throughout the whole year. But we're really excited uh, for what 2023 has in store. We're potentially going to be doing some major works on our crocodile enclosure, doing some refurbishment there. And hopefully, as I mentioned, continuing to contribute to breeding programmes and conservation work. So 2023, hopefully it's going to be a very exciting year for us. Still to come on the Sunday 7, scientists are starting a giant microbe bank and NASA discovers a new potentially habitable planet. Right after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso. Or maybe try our UK edition. It's all in the usual places. Trillions of bacteria, fungi and other microbes live in the digestive tract. Many of them are beneficial to human health, influencing our metabolism and immune system. But their diversity is under threat from the industrialization, urbanization and environmental changes. In order to cope with the problematic global decline of microbes and to preserve them for the future, Professor Maria Gloria Dominiquez Bayo and Professor Martin J. Blazer of Rutgers University have launched a new international project, a microbiota vault. Here's Professor Martin Blazer. In the last 50 years, we've concentrated, let's say, on how healthy we've become. The decline in our microbes is what's fueling the rise in these diseases. And we also see that these diseases arose during the antibiotic era, when uh, antibiotics have been so widely used and overused. With each generation, we're stepping down. We're losing microbes rapidly. I think it's happening faster, and that's why it has to be urgent. We now know our gut microbes are disappearing, but how much has been lost? Here's Professor Maria Gloria Dominiquez-Beo. We started comparing uh, ingredients of urbanization. That gives us an idea of how fast the process goes, what do we lose first, and then try to find functions. There is evidence that we seem to be trading diseases. We control infectious diseases as we use medicine and become more urban. Uh, But then we increase the risk of the diseases that have the underlying uh, inflammation 
as a common factor. And if microbes are responsible for that, in a way that's good news because we can manipulate them and we can restore. So it's a matter of decades before they will not be any more traditional peoples on Earth. We have to save those microbes before they disappear. In principle, the project is comparable to the well-known Global Seed Vault in Spitsbergen, Norway, which aims to conserve global crop diversity. Following a similar principle, the members of the Microbiota Vault project want to freeze numerous species of microorganisms and preserve them just as safely for the future. We are planning to store specimens, fecal samples, skin, and then any microbes that are derived from those samples that can be stored are also valuable. With the metadata is an initiative uh, that looks for preserving the microbes from all peoples in the world until we can study them and understand how can we use them to restore health in future generations. Tuesday, NASA announced the discovery of a new Earth-sized planet orbiting its star habitable zone. Scientists say that water could be present at some point in the planet's history. The planet TOI-700E is part of the TOI-700 system and is roughly 95% the size of Earth. It likely has a rocky surface, according to NASA. Three other planets were previously discovered in the TOI-700 system. TOI-700D is also the habitable zone. NASA said that this is one of a few systems with multiple small habitable zones planets that they know of. TOI-700 E takes 28 days to orbit its star, a small red dwarf star located around 100 light years from Earth. The planets have all been discovered by NASA's Transition Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS for short. Scientists hope to find more of these exciting new worlds in the ever growing data from TESS. industry is absolutely buzzing with excitement around the world's first vaccine for honeybees. Bees around the world are in decline, but there's hope that this vaccine will protect them from a major killer. Honeybees are prone to a number of pests and diseases which can range in severity from a minor nuisance to conditions that wipe out entire colonies. A common disease called Amarucan Falbrood is in the latter camp. Since the dawn of humans keeping bees, we've had foul brood, basically. That's Leonard Foster, Professor of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology, speaking with Global News. Foul brood attacks in Kislover as they hatch. The bacteria spores also lay dormant for decades, making it difficult to catch. And the only sure way to get rid of it is to burn the entire colony, which can have disastrous consequences. If those colonies have to be destroyed at the wrong time, it has a very large multiplier effect on the total agricultural output of that uh, area. Breeding disease-resistant bees and testing alternative treatments is constantly on the mind of researchers like Leonard Foster and his team. The problem with using antibiotics to treat foul brood, he says, is twofold. Bees are becoming immune and antibiotics leave a residue in honey. The vaccine, however, is given to the queen of the hive and her food. She then carries the vaccine in her ovaries. When her bee larvae hatch, they've inherited their immunity to the disease. Dallin Animal Health is the biotech company pioneering this vaccine 
Epstein and CEO Annette Kleisers shared just why this is so necessary. We need to have solutions that are non-chemical and that are not dangerous for the environment, that are, that are tested, that are safe, that are manufactured to the highest level of purity, all of those things. And that was our mission. Bees are pollinator and they play a vital role in keeping the world fed. They're responsible for a third of the world's food production, so keeping healthy is crucial. This has been the Sunday 7. However you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with a regular Smart 7 Ireland edition. Have a great rest of the weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Kira from the Smart 7 Ireland edition. Just to let you know, we're pausing this podcast from Friday the 25th of August, but you can still get up to speed in just seven minutes if you search the Smart 7 and catch up with our UK edition. Thanks for listening.